And if, you, if you're a parent of a uh, fourth or fifth grader, that class is going to be merged today with some of the, the like second, third graders. So they won't be in the basement. They'll be in that back room. Quick plug, if you're wanting to volunteer uh, in kids' ministry, that would be awesome. Then we wouldn't have to, ever have to merge the rooms. So sometimes we have to do that, especially on holiday weekends. All right. So my name's Tony. Uh, if we haven't met, uh, nice to meet you. Uh, I have the pleasure and the privilege of, um, hey guys, we're going this way. We got a couple drifters. There we go. Well done. Um, So my name's Tony. I have uh, the joy of being on staff here. We're uh, going through Samuel. If you've been with us a bit, right, we started in Genesis. Uh, today we are in 1 Samuel 28. If you have your Bible, feel free to grab it. Uh, but to begin, I want to start with a little bit of review. Uh, 1 Samuel 28 is a very odd story. And I want to sort of help ground the narrative a little bit so that we appreciate some of the moving pieces when we arrive at 1 Samuel 28, which takes place in a place called Endor, not the moon, a place in first century Israel. Uh, and it's a very interesting story. But let me, let me sort of review a little bit, especially if you haven't been with us. Um, so when you read through 1 Samuel, what you realize really quickly uh, is that there's all these moments in Saul's life when fear is deeply connected to sort of these falls that he has, some of his failures at faithfulness. If we flip all the way back to 1 Samuel 13, there's a conflict with the Philistines. Israel's terrified, so is Saul. And Samuel had told him, hey, wait seven days before you offer a sacrifice. But he has all this fear. He has this anxiety, right? And rather than going to the Lord and saying, God, you are my refuge. I trust in you. He takes matters into his own hands. He offers the sacrifice himself. Saul, Samuel shows up and he's like, dude, what are you doing? Next chapter, Saul has the Philistines on the run. He's thinking, I'm just going to go after him. A man of God shows up and he's like, hey, maybe you should uh, actually talk to God about this before you just rush into battle. He does. This is what he says, right? This is chapter 14, 37. Uh, to God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day, right? So instead of acting brashly, he actually tries to talk to God. Well done, Saul. He waits about 24 hours. Then his anxiety and fear mount up again, and he decides, man, we got to do something, I need to know what to do. So he pulls from his religious grab bag, decides lot casting is the answer. It leads to terrible consequences. Fast forward to chapter 15. Samuel comes in. He kind of gives Saul another shot. He's like, all right, man, you're going to go attack Amalek. But just as the thing, when you attack them, don't bring like a bunch of spoils of war. Don't bring all the treasure. Don't bring all these animals back. Those are gods. They defeat Amalek. All the troops start grabbing all the stuff, and the text says that Saul is afraid of them. So what does he do? He lets them do it, right? In this moment, he can't turn to God and say, all right, God, help me do this. I need your help. I'm scared of the troops. Instead, he says, yeah, guys, do whatever you want. 
Samuel shows up, 1524, and Saul says to him, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. And there's this clear pattern developing in 1 Samuel. One, Saul feels fear or anxiety. Two, rather than trust in God as his refuge, he takes matters into his own hands. He tries to provide immediate relief to the fear he feels in his body. He offers a sacrifice. He casts lots. Right? He gives into the voice of his troops. This is an important pretext as we get into 1 Samuel 28. So if you have your scripture out, the Bible out, uh, basically the, the 1 Samuel 28 begins with two key pieces of information. One tells us Samuel is dead. Okay? Samuel has died. So now Saul doesn't have the guy he's always turned to, gets information from and ignores. He doesn't have that guy around anymore. Two, it says that Saul has expelled all the mediums from the land. A medium is not really, it's not a size of a t-shirt. It's a, it's like only large and small. Um, medium is someone who basically tries to connect with spirits of the dead. We'll get more into this. This is how chapter 28 begins. Samuel said, the mediums are gone. The text says, verse 5, when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was, fill in the blank, afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or Urim or by prophets. And Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. First, Saul is again afraid. The pattern continues. The text says his heart trembles, right? So just a little bit of uh, nuance here, right? So often we say I have an emotion, but emotions are always embodied, right? So when Saul feels fear, there are stress hormones that are released like cortisol and adrenaline. His blood pressure is likely going up. His heart rate is also likely going up. Uh, often you breathe faster like most of us. When these physical sensations of fear hit us, they do not feel good. Have you ever felt fear? It doesn't feel all that good in your body. Saul not very good at containing his fear. He wants to get rid of it. He wants relief. And what does he do? Like he has done before, he takes matters into his own hands. Right? Just like before when he was casting lots, he tries to talk to God for a second. Well done, Saul. But he gets this feeling, right? It's not, he's not getting any relief. So he grabs from his religious grab bag again. All right, let, let, me, let me get my dream journal. Let's see if God speaks through a dream. Let me get these Urim. Have you ever heard of these, right? It's kind of interesting. The priests on their ephod would wear these little, I don't know, I sort of, we don't exactly know what they are. But essentially, the high priest would take this thing called Urim that was on their ephod, and they'd like roll them, I guess. And, uh, and it was like, yes or no, true or false, go ahead or not. That's sort of the idea. But the Urim, you know, they, he was not landing the dice combo he wanted, whatever. They are not working. He even asked some prophets, hey, prophets, help me here. 
But this shouldn't surprise us that God is not talking to Saul. And for one really important reason, God has already told Saul through Samuel that he is rejected as king. So it makes sense that he's not then giving the king who has been rejected a battle plan. Right? He's not even supposed to be in that position. He's like, hey, I know you rejected me as king, but tell me how to be the king in this moment. Right? Saul knows that God has already, God has already told Saul what to do. Hey, dude, give your robe and your spear and your crown and your power to David. Not lead the army as king into battle. But Saul doesn't really like that answer. But he also needs some way to deal with this fear which he does not like to experience. And amidst God's unwillingness to cosign Saul's disobedience, Saul turns to divination, to a medium, to get relief of his fear. Saul turns to his servants, now pretty desperate. He's like, hey guys, do you know of any mediums in the land? Nothing in my religious grab bag is working. Yeah, yeah, I know. I supposedly was supposed to have kicked them out of Israel. Yeah, yeah, I know. But do you know anyone? And the servants kind of are like, yeah, yeah, we know someone. There's this woman in Endor. This is the thing about Endor. Endor is not on Israel's side of the battle. Saul will actually have to cross over into enemy lines. Imagine two armies. He needs to figure out how to get to the Philistine side of the army to get to Endor, to get to this medium, to figure out how to relieve his fear. But Saul's not to be deterred. Sometimes we will do anything to relieve our fear. And the text says, verse 8, So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. So not only is Saul doing something, visiting a medium, that is explicitly forbidden in Mosaic law, he's also crossing behind enemy lines. The text says he changes out of his clothes and wears a disguise, right? He takes off his robe, which is symbolic of his, his kingship, his mantle. And he puts on other clothes, which is the narrator's way of telling us that to deal with his fear, Saul is giving up his role as king. And he's now seeking a medium, someone who's not God, to guide him. He sneaks by night in a disguise. He show ups, shows up at this woman's house. And he tells the woman, divine for me a spirit and bring up for me whoever I shall name to you. Okay, so just contextually, I don't know, this is called necromancy. Uh, so in Greek, necro is dead, mantea is to divine. So he's saying, hey, bring up basically the spirit of a dead person so I can talk to them. Okay? Usually the way this worked in the first century is um, you'd have like 
the necromancer or the medium. They would have a balm or a cream, and what they'd do is they'd apply it to their face, or they'd apply it to like a skull or a figurine. And essentially, the idea was then the spirit of the dead would then go into this physical object and speak to the requester through one of those three means, the medium, the skull, or the figurine. Okay? Following me so far? All right. The medium, though, she's kind of hesitant. She kind of has this sense, this is like a sting operation. You know? Hey, you know, I, I've heard Saul kicked out all the mediums. Like, what's going on here? I don't know anything about that. Now, Saul, he says this oath to her to assure her. He says this, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. I just want you to slow down for a second because the irony of this is thick. He calls on God, as the Lord lives, to grant immunity to one who breaks the Lord's command. But if Saul really believed the Lord lived, would he be visiting a medium in Endor? And yet, she's sort of settled by Saul's oath. She asks him, who do you want me to bring, right? And this is the ancient drum roll moment. Saul says, Samuel, right? The prophet who we were told was dead at the beginning of the chapter, verse 12. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul, you know, and you imagine him taking off his robe or something. Okay, the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew, right, from this old man robe comment, it's Samuel, because that's the only way Saul apparently looked, or Samuel looked. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Now, okay, this is a very odd part of the Old Testament. So I'm going to slow down for a second and just try and unpack a little bit of what's going on here. Uh, so there's a couple ways to interpret this. One is that this medium is actually bringing Samuel up from the dead. Option one. Uh, you know, but it also could be that she's kind of like a charlatan, right? She's kind of like making it up as she goes. Notice she is the only one who sees Samuel, right? Saul doesn't see. Now, to begin, just sort of contextually, it's important to realize that in the ancient Near East, right, this practice of necromancy was assumed to be true and to happen. So for us, we're like, what is going on? For them, they're like, oh yeah, that happens. Uh, Leviticus 19, do not turn to mediums or necromancers, right? Built into Leviticus, don't turn to them. What is Saul doing? Turning to them. Do not seek them out. What is Saul doing? Seeking them out. And so make yourself unclean. Saul has now made himself unclean. I am the Lord your God. So it's possible the text is saying that this medium actually pulls up this prophet of God. Possible. There are a few reasons I actually don't think this is the most likely scenario. Um, one seems super unlikely to me. That you have this faithful prophet of God and 
He's like hanging out and talking to God, right, in death. He's like hanging out, they're just hanging, and all of a sudden Samuel starts to like disappear. God's like, shoot, that witch again. Like, is he really going to let this faithful prophet of God be taken from his presence against his will and brought to Endor? I, I think not. Also, if she's playing the charlatan, uh, she doesn't go through the normal prescribed rituals. Right? This is like part of the shtick. Right? If you're a charlatan, you do all the stuff to get someone to buy in, right? You get the skulls out, you get the figurines, you put the stuff all over your face, and the person's like buying into the thing. That's what charlatans do, right? They ham it up. But that's not what we see here. Verse 12, the woman is clearly surprised that Samuel shows up. She hasn't gone through any of her shtick, and all of a sudden, boom, she's like crying out in a loud voice. My best guess is that Samuel doesn't show up by her power, but actually by God's. My best guess is that God brings Samuel there, not the medium, for one last prophetic indictment. All right, so let's presume God has brought Samuel into this space. Two, Saul is on the ground paying homage to something he cannot see, but he imagines is there. Because the medium has told him. And Saul says to Samuel, I am in great distress. I'm afraid. For the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what to do. Notice the pattern. Why is Saul at Endor, at a witch's, trying to get the spirit of Samuel to give him guidance. He's afraid. He's distressed. He's anxious. He's trying in the midst of feeling this overwhelming physical sensations to get relief. He's like, I've tried all this stuff. I'm desperate. I've snuck here at night. I've changed my clothes. I'm seeking a medium that I've kicked out of the land. I just need relief from my fear. This is what Samuel says. Why do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Essentially, right, I asked you to do stuff. You were always terrified and you always took matters into your own hands rather than being faithful. Right? Because you did not obey the voice of God and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Right? Remember this is the, the scene where the troops want to bring all the stuff back and he's afraid of the troops. Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. So he does all this work to try and get Samuel and try and get a word from the prophet. And Saul, he simply says to Saul, dude, you already know you're rejected as king. 
David is anointed as your replacement. We've talked about this. You've been unfaithful at pretty much every turn. You refuse to give this power over to David. So you're going to die tomorrow. And immediately, Saul hears Samuel's words. He falls down in terror and exhaustion. The test says in verse 20, he is filled with fear. Saul has tried repeatedly to deal with his fear, to get rid of it. And in the end, his fear has only gotten stronger. It's like become his master at this point, driving him across the border to a medium. Because in the end, right, Saul cared more throughout his life about relieving his fear and anxiety than being faithful to God and God's calling and invitation to him. So the question then, given this story, given this narrative, what do we do? I think there's one move where we could focus on, so what is happening here with this witch in Endor? And we could unpack that for a bit, and there's profit in that, and we actually have a cutting room floor that will come out this week. You can listen to it. We spent a little bit of time on that question. But I actually think a more relevant and important question is the pattern we see developing with Saul as it relates to his fear. Chapter 13, he's afraid. So what does he do? A premature sacrifice. He takes matters into his own hands rather than relying on God as his refuge. Chapter 14, right? He's afraid, not sure what to do. There's uncertainty. What does he do? He turns to lot casting. Chapter 15, right? He has a fear of his troops. What does he do? Rather than obey God and trust in him as as his refuge, takes matters into his own hands. Saul fears, this con- has this sort of constant experience of fear. And then in response to this, he constantly tries to get relief. And in the short term, I think this probably does provide some relief to him. Right? I think in that moment, he does feel better doing something rather than Sitting and just waiting and trusting in God. Doing something feels better than just sitting there doing nothing and trusting that God will be with him. But it also forms Saul into the kind of person who over time will seek relief at all costs. And this is, I think, what we see in chapter 28. At the end of his life, Saul has become the kind of person so shaped by these bad habits that he is essentially willing to lose his faith in order to relieve his fear. And I think this connection is really important to make. Because it's easy to kind of look at Saul as this like crazy guy, like, dude, what are you doing? How can you possibly try and go to a medium? Like, what are you thinking? That's the thing, right? It doesn't start in chapter 28 with Saul going behind enemy lines trying to seek a medium. It doesn't begin there. It started with cultivating a certain relationship to his fear. And rather than choose to trust in God in these moments of fear, he chooses momentary relief, taking matters into his own hands rather than faithfulness. 
And the thing is, right, this isn't just something that happened with Saul a few thousand years ago, you know, way back when. It still happens today. Right? It's been demonstrated again and again by neuroscience. Pretty interesting. Hebb's Law says that neurons that fire together wire together. Simply what this means is that every time Saul gave in to his fear by taking matters into his own hands, by trying to get immediate relief from his fear and anxiety, he became more likely to do it in the future. He's literally, every time he does this decision, he is shaping his physical brain to respond this way. Right? Rather than turning to God as his refuge, rather than trusting that God would be there, even if circumstances were really scary, which would have shaped his brain to be the kind of person that he would seek God even when he was afraid. And you are not your brain by Schwartz and Gladding, they write this. In essence, indulging these habitual responses, right? Saul, fear, momentary relief, causes your body and brain to associate something you do. Avoid, seek out, or repetitively think about with te temporary relief or pleasure. These actions create strong and enduring patterns, circuits in your brain that are difficult to change without considerable effort and attention. Essentially this, the more Saul avoided his fear, taking matters into his own hands, the stronger his need to avoid his fear became. For instance, you go back to chapter 13, it was a much easier decision for Saul to wait seven days and trust that God would show up, that Samuel would arrive. Much easier decision than when you get to chapter 28 and he's afraid. Now, it's so cemented in his brain and mind and body that choosing to trust in God in that moment is nearly impossible because he's done this pattern over and over and over again. And I guess I wonder, I wonder for us whether we're more like Saul than we might initially have thought. My guess is that some of us, all of us maybe, have certain ways of avoiding and coping just like Saul. And for my guess is that the ways we avoid and cope and distract are shaping us as well. Personally, I've been uh, thinking about Saul a lot, and I've been thinking about this passage a lot, and had this experience over the last uh, few weeks that I think kind of hits home for me personally. So the last few months have been fairly overwhelming for me, just work and life and everything. And I've noticed that in the midst of feeling overwhelmed, I constantly try and figure out how I can decrease that overwhelming, relieve my sense of being overwhelmed, like something is dropping or falling to the ground, by checking my email, my text, and my schedule. Initially, I thought this was pretty innocent enough, right? I'd get some relief. I'd be like, oh, I'm feeling overwhelmed. Let me just check my email, my text, and my schedule. I'd empty my inbox, and I'd be like, I felt good, right? Everyone, anyone ever had that experience? Then I started to notice I was doing this a lot. 
I'd be working for 10 minutes. I'd be like, let me check my inbox. Working for 10 minutes, back to my inbox. And I said, okay, you know, what's going on here? So I tried to stop. And it was like my phone had like a magnetic pull to me. What is going on? And I was like this tractor beam pulling me in. And I was thinking about Saul, and I was thinking about my life, and I realized that I've been using my constant email, text, and schedule checking as a way to provide temporary relief to feeling overwhelmed. Because this is the thing, right? Turning and trusting in God meant that I had to face the reality that I was overwhelmed. I actually had to feel that, which I really did not want to do. Realized I was behaving just like Saul. There's a flip side. This week, I was like, all right, I'm going for it. Like, I am not going to do this constant checking. Initially, it was actually really hard. I felt all the intensity of the overwhelming feelings I hadn't wanted to feel for the last two months. But then something happened. I started to actually, in the midst of being overwhelmed, experience the intimate comfort and presence of Jesus. I started to actually feel like, oh God, you actually are my refuge. And he then started to direct me and lead me, rather than me just short-circuiting the process by seeking relief in my overwhelming, I actually was encountering God and receiving comfort and support. The things I most wanted. And these are the things, the temporary relief that I got from checking my text, my email, and my schedule never gave me. You know, I meet with lots of people, and what I find consistently is that there are these patterns, these habits of avoidance that pull us from things that are often the most important in life. They pull us from deep friendships. They pull us from actually reading the scriptures. They pull us from prayer. They pull us from being a blessing in the broader community. Because we get so caught up in avoiding and distracting, we miss out on the most important thing God has for us. We miss out on cultivating trust and experiencing God as our, our refuge. We miss out on hearing the voice of God in those moments of being overwhelmed and afraid. Just like Saul with his fear. If you hang around church long enough, you're bound to get in a conversation about free will. Has anyone ever gotten one of those conversations? That usually becomes like a three-hour argument in college especially. Uh, there's a a neuroscientist named Benjamin Lippert who says he focuses not on free will, but this idea of free won't, which I actually find really, really helpful. Essentially, what he says is, yeah, free will, fine. But you know what? You have free won't. You can say no to these immediate patterns where you seek relief and say, no, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. Right? Saul had free won't. 
but he didn't use it. He could have chosen to seek God as his refuge. He could have chosen to trust in God no matter the consequences. Rather than jump into frenetic activity, rather than distract or avoid and seek relief. And the truth is, I have free won't. And so do you. In fact, one of the cool things about free won't is that we can literally rewire our brains over time by choosing to trust in God rather than distracting and avoiding. And so actually over time become the kind of people who trust in God. So at the end of our life, we are more in love with Jesus. We are more committed to his kingdom and mission in the world. In neuroscience, this is called self-directed neuroplasticity. That when you exercise the ability to say no about these destructive patterns, you actually rewire your brain. Saying no to distraction and avoidance instead of turning, focusing on God, trusting in him. See, in that moment of fear in chapter 13, Saul could have said to himself, oh, my brain is telling me that I need to do something to avoid this fear I feel. But I don't need to do it. My brain's telling me, but I don't need to. I can wait on the Lord. I can trust that he will be my refuge even if things go poorly. But it does take some real effort because what it means is you actually have to face what is going on in you. What you're thinking and what you're feeling. The gift of it is, is that you do it in the presence of a loving God who cherishes you. I found a couple questions to be helpful. Like, how do you know if you're doing this like, feel something, seeking immediate relief, repeat, ad infinitum? One question would be, You know, is this action I'm about to take aligned with God's best for me? Two, am I avoiding something right now? Three, is what I'm doing based on a craving? And you'll feel it in your body. I need to grab my phone. And if you realize, right, this behavior is somehow avoiding or distracting, maybe you instead, you go for a walk, get outside, talk with God, open up your Bible, read the scriptures, text a friend, see if someone wants to hang out. Right, the goal is to put God back at the center. To say, Jesus, I trust in you In this moment, as I feel anxiety or overwhelmed or whatever is going on, Jesus, I want you to be at the center, not my craving. Not that avoidant behavior. Jesus, I want you to be at the center. I want to worship you with my life. One practice uh, that I have found helpful when I'm uh, feeling anxious or afraid or overwhelmed or a little unsafe is um, I literally will just lay down on the ground like this. 
And all I'm trying to say to myself and to Jesus is, God, I'm open to whatever you have for me. And in the presence of trying to just let go, just saying, Jesus, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to be present to you in this moment. And my body posture, it's not a body posture I normally adopt, except for when I'm saying to Jesus, here I am. All of me is directed towards him. And I'm open and I'm vulnerable and I'm just trying to feel whatever is going on in the presence of my refuge. So that as I, as a pastor and a husband and as someone who's trying to follow Jesus, whenever I encounter those emotions and thoughts in the future, forms me into the kind of person that I'm more likely to trust in Jesus than avoid or distract. I want to invite the worship team up. Um, as I was sharing what I was going to say today with the worship team this morning, someone said to me, Keeping it light on a holiday weekend, right? <laughs> what I want to do as the worship team comes up, I just want to create a little space for you and the Holy Spirit to pay attention to what are those, what are those moves that you make to avoid and distract what are those moves you make that actually undermine your intimacy with Jesus? Because you're seeking comfort and relief in other things. I should invite you just to close your eyes. Maybe in this moment you're like, I have no idea. Awesome. Just let the Spirit convict you and bring something to mind. Or maybe if you're very aware of what that is. Just allow in this moment the grace of God just to wash over you and be with you in the midst of your awareness of your own brokenness. We serve a gentle, a gentle God. Jesus says, you know, I am gentle. I take your, my yoke upon you for I am gentle. Holy Spirit, come. Speak to us. Give us a way forward out of these endless cycles of avoidance and distraction. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's you feel overwhelmed. Maybe you learned early on that the only person you could trust was yourself. So rather than letting go into the hands of a loving father, you constantly hold your fist tight. Spirit, speak to us in your gentleness. Remind us that we are beloved. God, we don't want to stay trapped in these cycles. Set us free that we might, we might know you and trust you and seek you as our refuge. God, we don't want like Saul at the end of our life to be caught up in addictive cycles and habits that trap us. God, we want to be more and more in love with you, trusting in you with all of who we are. God, break the power 
God, heal our brains, heal our minds. Draw us near, Jesus. You are the fount of every blessing. You are the one in whom we want to trust. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit.